divisive. So if we're talking about the biblical basis of Jesus' second coming, we have to talk about the Old Testament prediction as well as the New Testament predictions. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you, and that's God talking to Satan, and the woman in between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So some people say, no, this is definitely a first coming, isn't it? This is Jesus on the cross. It is, and yet it has long reaching extensions because guess what? Until Christ comes back, eternity really isn't going to start taking place. We haven't reached the culmination of human history. And so this is a form of eschatology that in dispensational camps is known as already, but not yet. So people go, already, but not yet. What in the world does that mean? It means that we're already enjoying the benefit of fellowship with God through the shed blood of Messiah Jesus, and yet not are we entirely there. Is anyone here completely sanctified and set free from sin yet? Show of hands. Praise God, no one. All right. Had anyone thought they were totally sanctified, we'd have to have a talk later. All right, we're, we're being sanctified and none of us are yet glorified. So this is something that's gonna take place latter. Uh, Job 19, 25 through 26, you might not think of as a really awesome end of days passage, but know that this is something that Job said thousands of years before Jesus' incarnation. For I know that my redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Now that, I tell people, is an overt reference to the Jewish belief of resurrection. All right? You ever wonder why the Jews didn't burn their dead? Canaanites did. You know why Jews didn't burn their dead? Because they believed not only in an afterlife, they believed that the human body would again, be raised to everlasting life. So that's called resurrection. It's an entirely different belief. Psalm 2, 8 and 9 says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for a possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And if you look at Psalm 2, it's a very messianic psalm. And this is the father speaking to Jesus who is his son. The nations are Jesus' inheritance. All right? And he's going to Rule them or break them, dependent upon your translation in English, with a rod of iron. Don't ever for a second forget that Jesus is a ruling and reigning king. I know a lot of people today got this messed up view of Jesus. You know, I call it 98 pounds soaking wet Jesus. And I hate that view of Jesus because I think it's ridiculous. All right, the skinny, emaciated white Jesus in a, in a garden is the most ridiculous view of Jesus. A, I hate to break your... Your bubble here, but you know, Jesus didn't have blue eyes and blonde hair. I could just tell you that because I've been to Israel and I know what Israelis look like. They're dark skinned, they got curly brown hair, and everyone I ever met had brown eyes. And I'll bet you Jesus looked a lot like that. And before we forget, what was Jesus? All right? He was a blue collar worker. All right? Everyone goes with carpenter, but I'm going to tell you right now, having studied Greek and seminary, the word is technon, and it means builder. It doesn't mean carpenter, because I can tell you what they don't have in Galilee in, in droves, forests. They have a lot of stones in the upper half of Israel, but not, not a lot of trees. And yes, I'll tell you flat out, I bet Jesus built lots of things out of stone like a stonemason would. 
Matter of fact, uh, in the 1970s, they unearthed an entire stone village in, in Nazareth above it. And it said, the carpenters of the Galilee made this village. And I tell people, Jesus was a carpenter of Galilee. There's a great chance that he was part of that building project. When Peter walks out on the water with Jesus, if you remember that whole thing, you know, because Jesus is walking on the water and, you know, big mouth Peter says, you know, Lord, command me and I'll come out. And I think Jesus probably snickered under his breath and he's like, I come. You know, Peter gets out of the boat and church historians tell us Peter was a big guy and I think he was a big guy. And when he starts looking around at the natural of it all, it says he didn't sink like a stone. It says he began to sink into the waters. And it says, singular, Jesus pulled him back into the boat with one arm. Want to know why? Because buff Jesus is a better view of 98 pounds soaking wet Jesus. I was like, you, you know, you saw it in your grandma's house, like all skinny, wearing a white dress. I tell people, I'm like, man, like that's so culturally inappropriate to not throw a buzzword out there for you, but like just those artist depictions are like the craziest stuff in the world. It's like, who made Nordic Jesus? Like, where's, was that, does that, was that artist from like Norway or Sweden? It's like Swedish Jesus. Like, look, <laughs> it's not, that's not what Jesus looked like. That's just not it. Jesus was a builder. He was a blue collar worker. He was in great shape. All right. And look, I'm telling you when he comes back, Read your Bible. Read Revelation, what it says. It says a sharp sword proceeds from his mouth, and he comes back to quick, quick, quickly judge. It's coming back, all right? Why do, you think, why do you think when Jesus started driving people out of the temple, they beat feet? Do you think it's because he was 98 pounds, right? He drove those people out with authority, and they moved, Zechariah 14.4 says, And in the last days his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and catch this, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. I've argued with friends of mine who said, well, that's all metaphorical, and it was actually, that's a reference to the first coming of Christ, and I say, I don't think so, because Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, okay? In the night in which he was betrayed. They were there. Right? He's coming back to that spot, and that mountain is going to have a split. Let's look at some New Testament predictions. Matthew 24, 30 says, And then the signs of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus meant nothing metaphorical about this. This is how he's coming back. And if you think about it with me logically for a second... In Acts 1.8, how did Jesus leave the earth? Wasn't it bodily, visibly, and physically into the clouds he ascended? And while all the disciples are staring up into the clouds, probably mouths open, gawking, not knowing what to do, two angels came out and said, men of Galilee, why do you stare into the clouds? Jesus will return in this same manner. Yeah. Jesus talked about it before that. They just, like the rest of us, needed a fresh reminder. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need a fresh reminder. Matthew 25, 31 through 41, highly condensed. 
When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. This is talking about when he comes back. This has to be a second coming of Christ reference because he told it in his first advent. That's why it has to be a reference to his return. And again, Acts 1, 9 through 11. And while they looked steadfastly towards the heavens as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel and said to the men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken from you up into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He went up into the clouds. Guess what? He's coming back in and with the clouds. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 said, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse. This is nothing like Revelation 6, who is Antichrist. This is Jesus, who is the Christ, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Jesus is coming in judgment, and it's righteous indignation against a Christ-rejecting planet. All right? Global. That's all y'all on the whole planet. Jesus is coming with righteous judgment. That's why my view of the tribulation period is just that. What is the seven tribulation what is that period of time specific seven years before the millennial reign, which is a thousand years? And it's, it's what only makes sense to me reading the Bible very, very seriously, coupled with reading the Bible very literally. Why seven years? Because it's a heptatic number. Seven is the number of divine completion. Six days God created, and the seventh day he rests to show his completion was now done. Seven is a very complete number. It's seven years on a Christ-rejecting society before there is now a thousand years of what you would call a golden age of society and peace upon the earth. That's what makes sense. But rest assured, Jesus is coming in judgment. And I know it hurts a lot of people's feelings and they make you know, weird faces at me and they get really mad and they say, well, you don't think the tribulation period is a time when a lot of people get saved? Nope because I've studied the book of Revelation one too many times. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that great droves of people get saved. It actually says a lot of people bite their tongues, shake their hand to heaven, and curse the God of all creation. So I think that when the earth is ripe enough for it, and God knows, that's what we all need to know. Stop with the goofy, you know, if you're listening to some Bible teacher and he's like, in the vein of Harold Camping, and he's telling you that, you know, he did some Bible math you never heard of before, and on, you know, May 15th, 2039, he figured out, just get rid of all that nonsense, all right? That's the most, every single Bible teacher who has, predict, has tried to predict anything with the second coming of Christ have all been wrong, all been wrong. 
And if you're going to follow the Bible when someone prophesies and it doesn't come to pass, what's the word for such a person? Anybody? A false prophet. Someone who falsely prophesies. I can tell you what the Old Testament remedy was, but we're a little more gracious in the New Testament dispensation of time. All right? False prophets. You don't think we have false prophets in the church today? We have false prophets in the church today. Don't kid yourself. All right? Solomon said it. There ain't nothing new under the sun. And there isn't. Not even fashion is new. We used to swear when we were in high school, the stupid crap we used to wear in the 90s would never come back. And y'all are wearing ripped jeans again. So, hate to tell you, but even fashion comes back again. It's just all cyclical. It's a repeating pattern. There's nothing new. Nothing new under the sun. So the physical nature is another thing that we have to focus on. Jesus is going to return the same way he left, according to scripture. Every eye will see him. Victory over death really demands it. Otherwise, there is no true victory. His first coming assures it. Literal interpretation demands it. And even the early Christian creeds of the second and fourth century proclaimed it. So let's take a quick look at each one of these. All right? He's going to return the way he left. Right? We already looked at this passage, Acts 1, 9 through 11. When the men of Galilee are staring up to heaven, two men in white apparel, we would call them angels, came out and told them, you need to just stop staring into the heavens because Jesus, he's already told you. He's leaving in the clouds and he's returning in the clouds. Another thing is that every eye will see him. Behold, he is coming at the clouds and every eye will see him. And they whom they pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. We know that every eye is going to see him. This is going to be an epic global event. Now, if you would have said every eye is going to see him, years ago, people would have said, that's stupid. It's impossible. How can every eye see him? I mean, what about people on the other side of the world? How can every eye see him? I can tell you that there's two ways around it. Um, When Jesus returns, every eye will see him because every eye left on planet Earth will be gathered in that place. It's a little tiny place wedged in the Middle East about the size of New Jersey called Israel. That's why every eye will see him. If If you need a more naturalistic explanation, I'll help you too. Uh, they've got this funny thing in all of our houses. Wait, it's an acronym. It's just two letters. What is it? What is it? TV. Yeah. Can't you watch anything that's going on globally, any event, anywhere? If something kicked off right now in China, everyone will be able to see it. I don't care what time of day it is. That's how satellite and networking works. That's how it is. So even as we approach the biblical prophecy of things, a lot of what Daniel said was true. Daniel, scroll up, you know, seal up this scroll in latter times. Daniel chapter 12, scope it for yourself. Knowledge will increase. I hate to tell you, brothers and sisters, you know, knowledge has increased a lot since Daniel's day, hasn't it? All right? Just so everyone knows, and this is going to sound like, wow, Pastor Jay, you share the weirdest stories. You're welcome. Had you committed a serious violent crime, serious violent crime in 1990, 
It doesn't matter how much DNA you would have left behind because it was a brand new science at that point. You probably would have got away with it. And it wasn't until 1998 where they really started to even get a good grasp on it. Now, I know everyone thinks we're so unbelievably advanced in this society, but I tell you, 1990, just for a lot of you who were born during that time, because I know a lot of you were, 1990 wasn't a long time ago. Technology is a funny thing. It, it seems like it's an exponential multiplier. It just keeps speeding up and advancing and advancing, you know? You think that you've got a great piece of technology today, but you know what the sad thing is? In nine months, if you go into the Apple store with it, they'll tell you it's crap. You're like, what do you have? It's like, it's a joke. Like, our computers are like 19 times faster now. We got a zillion, jillion gigabytes going now. It's like, man, I, I thought this thing was good. It's like, well, it was good eight months ago. It was great nine months ago. It was eh, four months ago. Today, you could pick it up on eBay for half of what it's worth because that's just how technology works. I happen to go with the non-naturalistic view. I believe when Jesus returns, it's probably going to be because everyone who's left on planet Earth is going to geographically be located there, in great majority at least, in the Middle East, in Kharmagido, which is a huge valley. The Battle of Armageddon. You ready for the number? The Valley of Megiddo comfortably, comfortably fits one million people. Comfortably. And I can tell you, having been to it, it's not like, oh, what a cute little field. It's a ginormous valley between two huge mountains. Enough room for a million people to scrap it right out. That would be one big war. And if you go through the book of Revelation and start reading it, you start realizing this. No matter what your belief is upon it, in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, one quarter of the population of planet Earth dies in catastrophic earthquakes. Ready? That'd be over two billion people. A quarter. And then more and more and more and more people die from plagues and catastrophes brought upon planet earth so this is not a hard verse to get around anymore well how is every eye going to see him because everyone left on planet earth is going to be in the middle east that's what it that's what it means victory over death absolutely demands it paul tells us this in first corinthians 15 24 to 26 then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom up to god the father for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet the last enemy that will be defeated is death. So ask yourself this right now. Do people still die on planet Earth? Then it is not the end. That's what you need to remind yourself. And that is not the end. Because guess what? That's the last enemy to fully be put down. Furthermore, his first coming assures it. Since all predictions about Jesus' first coming were fulfilled literally, you've got to really ask yourself this and turn your thinking caps on. What about his second comings? Do you mean to tell me in some weird church tradition we'll believe all the, the first coming predictions about Messiah and then, I know, we'll spiritualize and allegorize and symbolize all the second ones? Uh, that would be pretty illogical. Why would you do that? 
If the, if the predictions of Jesus in his first coming as savior all played out literally, then his prediction of coming back as reigning king must all be literal. You want to see a place where it works together? The spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, in Isaiah 61, verse 1. This is the very place Jesus unrolled the scroll of Isaiah 2 in his hometown synagogue, Nazareth, right? He reads one little blurb that's extremely messianic, and then he stops at a full-blown comma in the Hebrew text, rolls it up, hands it back to the attendant, and says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. What didn't he read? And to proclaim the vengeance of our God. Because that's in his second coming. So why did Jesus stop shy of a comma and not read the whole passage? Because in his first messianic advent, it was to come and atone for sinners. That's why he's here to bind up the brokenhearted, heal the lame, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. What's he coming in his return? Uh, in his return, he is coming to be the ruling and reigning king. Right there. It is at this very reading that the men of Nazareth attempted to throw Jesus off a cliff. Go ahead, crack open Luke 4, 18 and read it. They tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. And I was in the village of Nazareth and there's a cliff there. And you know what that tells me? This is all true. I started looking, I'm like, man, that sucks. Like that doesn't look like a good thing to be thrown off. Because on the bottom, you'd be in bad shape. And then everyone would run around you and start hitting you with rocks. And your whole day would be rocked. Trust me, a super negative, not so good way. The worst dad joke ever on the fly. For the more literal interpretation that I just spoke about really demands it. Because if the literal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest it results in pure nonsense. And that's the best way to read your Bible on the planet. Read it. Read it plainly. And when the plain sense makes good sense, stop seeking another sense. When you read it and the plain sense doesn't make the best sense, then think of another sense. When Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches, is Jesus a tree? No. When Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven, does that mean we should all snack on him? You know, did it say wonder on his back? Right? No. Jesus isn't bread. What he's trying to tell you is, analogically, by way of analogy, is that he is like bread, as in you can find your true sustenance in him. All right? He is like a tree trunk, and all the branches that are in him, as long as they're in him, receive their, their, their sustenance and everything that they need from him because he's the source. But again, even when you take a, a look, that's, that's not an allegorical look. I tell people that that's a symbolic and that's a more of a poetic understanding. Even when you do that, the truth of the matter is there's only one real good literal thing that comes from that. That doesn't mean that flowers are going to grow on your head and they're going to be Jesus flowers or anything else that's whacked out. It just means that you have to be in Christ if you're going to grow. If you break off a tree branch or if lightning hits a tree branch and it hits the ground, that is the end of it. All right? If I literally... If I walked into a vineyard and sawed off an apple tree and then like a moron 
drug this huge branch that was once living and is now very dead and threw it up on the ping pong table and said, guys, guys, I'm stoked because October 1st is what we all know as apple picking season. And in just two months, there's going to be apples all over that. I'm so excited. You'd all say, Dr. J, stop drinking Drano. Because although it'll clean you out, it'll leave you hollow at the same time. If you cut a tree limb off a tree and throw it up on a table, it's never going to grow anything. It's dead because it's no longer in the tree. That's just the truth of the matter. My whole thing is that the literal interpretation is like sincerely over 90, over 90 part percent of the Bible is literal interpretation. All right. The whole Bible's not written in prose and parallel, you know, and different kinds of teaching parables and everything else. It's not. Actually, it's, it's, it's not mostly poetic. The majority of the Bible is actually narrative, which is stories that are true. Well, stories that are true are meant to be believed truly. So literal interpretation really demands it. You see, it's the normal approach of all people in all languages. You go to the doctor, he writes your prescription, how do you follow it? Yeah, you follow it literally, unless you're really special. All non-literal interpretation depends on literal meaning. People who are always going with non-literal meanings actually believe that the meaning they have itself is literal. So I tell people then you literally do believe in literal, don't you? It's a trap. You have to. It's like the person who goes, there is no absolute truth. And you're an idiot. Because what you just said couldn't be true. Because you just told me there's no such thing as absolute truth. Well, then your statement couldn't possibly be true. Could it be relatively true? Oh, do you really want to go down that path with me? There's all kinds of absolutes on this planet. You can jump up and down and hope that ice will freeze at any other temperature than 32 degrees Fahrenheit at sea level, but let me tell you where it freezes. Right there. You can take the same ice cube and throw it in a pot at sea level and say, please don't boil at 212. Please don't turn into steam. Please don't go through the change, but it's going to. There are all kinds of absolutes on the planet, and truth by nature is absolute. Matter of fact, I tell people there's no such thing as relative truth. There's opinions, and people confuse opinions and truth on a regular basis, and they're different. You see, literal interpretation is consistent to use the literal method on some, but not all, the Bible. Just use it everywhere, because even when you're reading a parable that may have some kind of symbolic meaning behind it, you're still reading it literally and trying to interpret it as literal as possible. Every time Jesus made an analogy to nature, he wasn't talking about some kooked out abstract. He was talking about the real nature and reality in which people lived. So you have to go literal. It is also inconsistent to use it on some prophecy, but not all prophecy. Why would you take some prophecy literal, but not all of it? It's also a check on the wild imagination of depraved minds. Because if you haven't understood this, Dr. Ed White said it best. There is no damnable heresy that hasn't been quoted by some mind somewhere using facts, figures, and holy scripture. And Dr. White's correct. People will do all kinds of things. Do you know that Hitler was a practicing Catholic 
who used Bible verses to systematically slaughter over 10 million Jews in the Holocaust? No, because they keep that out of history books, but it's still the truth. Was there a shred of truth to what he said? No, there wasn't a shred. Matter of fact, I'm appalled at how many things he did say that are also kept out of the history books. He had some pretty disparaging words to say about the Olympics for another message. Even those who deny the literal method want their denial to be understood literally, showing again that on this planet, we as human beings make argument for literal on a regular basis. Even people who will deny it want themselves to be understood literally. Is it a symbolic no, you want me to literally understand you. Oh, okay. And furthermore, failure to use it on other parts of the Bible undermines the fundamentals of the faith. There are a couple basic tenets to Christianity that we don't want to lose. And to reiterate, if you're going to take all of Jesus's first coming prophecies at face value, then all of the second should be literal as well. So the early creeds actually proclaim it. And I know a lot of people feel strange about the creeds, but I'm going to tell you again, there's nothing wrong with the early Christian creeds. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified died and was buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. That's his return. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic, which is the universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. That's as early church as you can get probably penned right around 8,200. We're talking about within 150 years to 120 years of the last living apostles. Did the apostles write the creed? No, people get that wrong. No, it's the apostles' creed as in this is what we wrote down based on what we heard the apostles teach us. That's why it's called the apostles' creed. The apostles didn't pen it. This came out of the apostolic tradition. The apostles taught these things. And what is that? teaching about Jesus coming back and talking about the resurrection and life everlasting. Also, the Nicene Creed also believes in this. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit. With the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. I ask every Christian who has a problem with the creeds, why don't you tell me which one of those things is unbiblical? They're all biblical. You won't find any of them that's not biblical. They're all biblical to the core. Every one. 
resurrection and Jesus' ret- return was the hope of the New Testament church, the church of the Middle Ages, the church of the Reformation, the church of early modernity. And you know what? It's our hope today too. It's still our hope today. What else is your hope in? This world? Let me tell you something. This world desires to gnaw, chew you up, and spit you all over the place like bad guacamole. Okay? I can tell you, I'm a lot older than all y'all. This world just wants to devastate you. And people in this world are only looking how they can use you, how they can abuse you, and nine times out of ten, what can they get from you? And that's just the rotten heart of humanity. You don't like it? Live in the world for 10 minutes and tell me what it's like. Oh, I live in New Jersey where everyone's other-centered. Everyone just loves everyone here. It's pink bubble gum and strawberries and cherries all day, right? This is like the meanest state in the lower 48, all right? I'm pretty sure at one point, someone petitioned the U.S. Constitution to change the state slogan of New Jersey to where the weak are killed and eaten. But someone said, it's a little too true to life. So we'll go with something else. This is the nature of man left to himself. Left Left unto ourselves, humanity is a darn mess. And it is only through God's grace. It is only through the rhythms of picking up the divine. It's only by God. Can we even be made partly beautiful again? We are so absolutely positively in need of a savior. So what about the doctrinal importance of this wonderful teaching? Well, The second coming of Christ is necessary to complete our salvation, to defeat death, to destroy Satan, to restore paradise, to punish evil in hell, and to preserve good in heaven. I know that's a lot, so let's wrap them up quickly. To complete our salvation and to defeat death. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom up to God the Father, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy defeated is death. So to complete our salvation and to defeat death in one accord, Paul tells us this is how it has to happen. And Christ coming back, that's what's going to set these things in motion. What about to destroy Satan? Hebrews 2.14 says, he himself, referring to Jesus Christ, shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. You see, that's one thing that we really kind of forget by skipping over Old Testament books like Genesis. We forget that in the garden, God had actually given Adam dominion. And what's the problem? He lost his dominion when he sinned. That is, again, why the New Testament calls Satan the God of this age, because he is. And Satan, who is the god of this age, does what? Second Corinthians says he masquerades as an angel of light, which means he is deceptive, he's the father of lies, and he has a bunch of people thinking, I'm good, you're good, let's throw our hands in the air, YOLO. Wrong. It's like the worst thing ever thought up by people. You only live once. What if you're wrong about that, huh? 
what if your YOLO theory is like not so, you know, super cool at the end of it all? What if you actually live forever? What if humanity is created in the image of Almighty God and in that bears a twinkling of the divine and is created for eternity? Then YOLO, not so true. Not at all. And not a good thing for Christians to go shouting, you know, as they zip down the highway with the roof down. Not a good thing, you know? No, I don't think that's true. Satan, who has a large percentage of the control of this world, is going down. Why do you think he's so bent out of shape? Because he knows his end. And he's finished. Which means reading through the book of Revelation is a good and healthy thing for Christians today because you know what it shows us over and over again? Get to the end of the book. Jesus Christ, who is the lamb, wins. All right? Our God wins. Our Savior is on top. Two, restore paradise. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first earth had passed away. Then I, John, saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Revelation 21, 1 and 2. Guess what? The earth we're living in now in this reality that we call our universe our solar system, the Milky Way, all this, these things are all done. They're all going to wrap up and they're all going to be done. And Jesus Christ is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And that is the eternity that we are to enjoy with him. Jesus is also coming back to punish evil. Like it or not, this is what the Bible teaches. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15 said, and then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. So there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. The, jed, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And let's tackle the issue that everyone has with this, right? That's not fair. Where did you get the concept of fair from? And secondly, I'll paint you in the corner. What do you mean by that? That's not fair. Yeah, it's not. God in heaven gives you 70, 80, 90 years to figure it all out. That's not fair. Uh, I think God is overly fair. Super duper fair. Way more fair than any of us down here. Okay? He's super fair. And I take C.S. Lewis's long look on this. That if it's 10,000 presentations of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is needed for one human heart to come to a understanding of that saving knowledge, then I believe with everything I am that God in heaven will give that person 10,000 presentations of the gospel of Christ. But you know what the truth of the matter is? Some people just won't believe no matter what. And I tell people, it's extremely fair. It's extremely fair. Let me lay it out for you. Get all deep and philosophical. Woo. All right? Oh, it's not fair. 
All right, so check it. You've lived your life 100% selfishly, all for you. You're your own little God. You sit on the throne of your heart for 80, 90, 100 years, whatever God graced you with. I don't know. He's super nice, way better than me. Right? Then all of a sudden, God makes you go to heaven where everyone is rejoicing and singing praises because they have loved God for the majority of their human life. You have hated God your whole life. Do you think you would be happy in heaven? You wouldn't be happy in heaven. That would be hell for you. If you don't want to worship God, it's all good. The Bible is replete with commands like he gives people the desires of their heart. Your desire is to be all about you, 100% self-focused, about you, no one else, and just you. Sounds like your eternity is fixed, my friend. That's what it sounds like. Don't tell me you would be happy in heaven if you've hated God and the concept of his fair economy and Jesus' shed blood your whole life. That would do nothing for you. And here's the best part. Let me tell you how awesome God is. He'll never make you go. You don't have to. You can spend your eternity very much where you want to. I would try to talk you out of that rather poor decision. Know what you believe and know why you believe it are two of the best things I can ever speak into young people's lives. Know what you believe and know why you believe it. I can tell you after 25 years of hard study, there's no other book on the planet, no other book on the planet like the Holy Bible. Because let me lay it out for you. It's not a book. It's a library. You've got 39 Old Testament scrolls and 27 in the New. That's 66 different inspired books by Almighty God that have been bound together for your benefit. It's not a book. It's a volume. It's a library bound into one. All of those books saying the same thing about Almighty God and the perfect plan he has for humanity. It's perfect. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 John 2, 2, Jesus Christ is the propitiation of our sins and not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. Jesus was beaten and hung on a cross to pay for sin he never committed so that a bunch of rebels like us could be reconciled to a holy, righteous God and experience not just in the future, but experience peace and harmony with God now and forevermore. That's the power of what Christ did. That's the power of the gospel. Jesus is also coming back to preserve good in heaven. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4 say, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. 
and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Just as hell is a place where evil will be consigned forever, heaven is a place where we will rejoice and experience the bliss of fellowship with Almighty God forever. Jesus bled out. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to believe, the gospel. I'm telling you, take a long, hard look at it if you're a skeptic. Take a long, hard look at, at the history of Christianity. That in every single place that men and women of Almighty God have gone, people's bonds have been broken. All right? Just go look. Look wherever Christianity has gone. Hospitals have been built so that people can physically be healed. Schools have been established so people can go from illiterate to knowing how to even care for themselves. Everywhere that the gospel has gone, there has, believe it or not, been a huge measure of prosperity. Because whoever Jesus sets free is free indeed. And so do we have perfect Agreement on this doctrine? Are there some doctrinal disputes? There are, and we'll, we'll kind of close out with this. Let's talk about what we can agree upon, because it's important. I think every Christian on the planet agrees in the bodily return of Jesus Christ to earth. I think all Christians agree that the physical resurrection of the dead at the end of days. Everyone says heaven is a reality, absolutely. It's the eternal destiny of those who are saved in Christ. Hell is the eternal destiny of the lost. But there are a lot of things that we kind of disagree upon. And I want to let you know, it's okay. Some Christians are amillennial. They say, we don't believe in any millennial reign whatsoever. We think it's all allegorical and it's all symbolic. Some Christians say, we're post-millennial. We believe Jesus returns to the earth. However, he returns Definitely after the millennium, and we're not really sure what that means anyway. Then there's crazy people like us Calvary Chapel nutbags. We say, we think that, that Jesus Christ is actually returned before the millennium, and Revelation 20 basically says that it's really a thousand years, and that Jesus is going to set up his throne, and he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. Now, I got to tell you, if you don't believe that, well, then you believe the Old Testament is wrong. 2 Samuel 7.14 says that one of the descendants of King David is going to sit forever on David's throne. Ready? Pop quiz. When in Jesus' incarnation, which was roughly 30 to 35 years, when did Jesus sit on King David's throne? I'll give you all the stupid answers if you want to hear the dumb ones. Uh, the most popular one in most camps of the amillennialists and post-mill people is, during the triumphal entry. You know, when Jesus sat on the back of a baby donkey. Not even a donkey. Read the passage carefully. He's sitting on the back of a donkey that was being led by its mother. So he was sitting on the small donkey. Now, I don't care how short a man you are. When you're riding a baby donkey, that looks ridiculous. And you want to know why it looks ridiculous? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is a humble king. And that was the idea. 
in the Roman period of time, when a ruler came in on a white horse with his sword drawn, everyone knew I was going to drink that. I still will. When a ruler came in on a white horse, everyone knew that he was a conquering king. All right? And he meant business. He was a warrior. When a new ruler... Get away. I screwed that cap on tight. Don't get excited. All right. When a ruler came in on a donkey... Thank you, Angela. It means that he was really, really gentle, lowly, and humble. Because if you look at a donkey, it's kind of a goofy animal to ride. It's not real majestic. They're goofy. Jesus riding on a donkey literally fulfilled the prophecy in Zechariah 12. And it also showed him to be that humble king. He was super humble. But that can't be sitting on David's throne because David's throne wasn't a donkey. You want to know why Jesus could have never sat on King David's throne in AD 30? There was no throne to sit upon. There wasn't an Israelite. There wasn't an Israelite ruling in that time period. All right? King Herod was an Idumean. Go check your Old Testament history. He was a descendant of Esau, not Jacob, which makes him an Edomite. Last time I checked, Edomites weren't to be kings of Israel. But you see, he wasn't a real king. He was what we would call in historical terms, he was a vassal. He was set up by a greater higher power, like Rome. And they set him up and he was a stooge. Herod couldn't do anything in Israel. Until Pontius Pilate checked with Caesar and then he got the okay. And then Herod could do something in Israel. He wasn't an Israeli. He wasn't a descendant of Abraham. He really wasn't, not in that sense of being a Jew. So here's the truth of the matter. Jesus could have never sat on King David's throne. So when will Jesus fulfill the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7? It's real plain and simple. When he comes back to establish his rule and reign during the thousand-year millennium reign. That's when he's coming back. That's when he's coming back to sit on David's throne. And I tell people, prophecy is really important. Don't ignore it and don't check your brain at the door. Whether you're pre-tribulational and you think the rapture is going to happen before the seven-year tribulation period, whether you believe in a mid-tribulation rapper, like it's going to happen in the middle, whether you're post-tribulational and you think the rapture is at the end of the tribulation, or whether you're a preterist and you say, there is no future tribulation. It all happened at 80, 64 to 70. None of those things determine your salvation, okay? None of them. In the body of Christ, they're what we call tertiary issues. That's of third importance. None of them are salvific. You know what the real important one is? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. Those are really the important ones. So, how then should we live? Titus 2, 11 through 13 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, teaching us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how we should live. Soberly, righteously, and godly. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, We know that when he is revealed, 
we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Jesus's body was fully glorified, meaning that it would never see death or decay ever again. So when he comes back, what's he gonna do? He's gonna transform our lowly bodies to be just like his. And if your hope is in that, then you should do the one thing that Jesus is himself. Jesus is pure. And if your hope is in Christ, then you should purify yourself just as Jesus is pure. I'm not talking about some kind of weird, bizarre Christian asceticism. Start hitting yourself with a whip every Thursday night. Crawl on your knees to mass. I'm not talking about any of that. That's all, that's all weird. What I'm talking about is just a healthy, sanctified life walking with Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. That means being in your Bibles, not because you have to, but because you're in a free country. You get to. That means prayer. Not just for self, like Jesus is some kind of utilitarian genie, you know? <laughs> oh, Jesus is waiting. I can't pay my car. <laughs> oh, my roommate's mad because I borrowed 20 bucks and now I can't pay rent. You know, like, first of all, Jesus already knows your woes, but let's stop treating him like a genie in a bottle. The prayer for others. How about an intercessory prayer? Thinking about others. You can think about yourself too. Just make sure that you're not 100% self-focused in prayer because you don't have to pray. You get to pray. Christian fellowship, building up your brothers and sisters, spending time with them, really doing more for others than you do for yourself, which I think is a central foundational teaching of all of God's word, all 66 books. I see it everywhere. It's a golden thread running through. Be others Centered, not self-centered. Do those things. And again, we need to, in our society, take all the, you know, all the have-tos and, and spin them to the get-tos. Because when you start saying you have to, you turn into a legalist. You get to. You get to do all of these things. We get into the word of God because the truth of the matter is as we read it and meditate upon it and memorize it, the, the, the honest thing and the truth is it's a sanctifier of the human heart. It makes young men and women into godly young men and women. We get into that book so that the truth of the matter is so that it gets into us. That's why we read the Bible. And last but not least, 2 Peter 3 10 and 11 says, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Peter, in short sense, says this. You realize it's all going to burn, right? For the guy out there rubbing his 1968 Ferrari with a diaper, saying, I love you, sweet little red machine. Ooh. For, for all, you know, those people don't exist today. Yeah, they do. Uh, they're all over the place, and some of them come to our church. Believe me. <laughs> all right? Let me tell you something. Let me tell you straight up in Chuck Smith fashion, it's all going to burn. So the next time some thoughtless eight-year-old opens their door too hard and dings your car in a shopping right, you know, in a, in a 
ShopRite parking lot, take a look at his mom who's probably been beaten down pretty hard with too many kids and show some grace. Amen? Show some grace. It's all gonna burn. None of the things down here last forever. When's the last time you've ever seen a hearse hauling a U-Haul? You see anyone? You see people dumping gold and favorite possessions into the grave? That'd be a weird funeral, by the way. No, you've never seen that. Because none of that stuff matters. Only in this life, what's done for Christ will last. Everything else is a shadow. It doesn't matter. Because let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you now, the king is coming. All right? And there will not be peace in this world, and there will not be security, and there will not be men and women holding hands and singing kumbaya. There's no human solution to the problem of sin and hatred and evil. There's none of those things. Humanity's not that smart. We're not going to get it right. And I'll tell you, what's going to make the world right is when Jesus Christ returns and takes his rightful place sitting on the throne of David. That's, that's what's going to make this world an exceedingly abundantly beautiful place. Let's pray. Father God, in the name of your son, Jesus, help us here, Lord God. There is no, there is no human solution to war. There is no human solution to disease. There is no human solution to hate or racism or anything else that plagues the society, Father God. None of it. Because we just keep doing the same things over and over again on this planet. Following the same cyclical, sick patterns, oh God. Only Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, can set things right on earth. And so, Lord, hasten the day. And we say with John 2,000 years ago, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, please come. But, Lord, the truth of the matter is we can sit around like the Thessalonians and get so heavenly minded that we now are now of no earthly good. And we don't want to have an overrealized eschatology, Lord. What we want to have is a healthy view of it. We're living for you, Lord, because you willingly died for us. And we want to live out our days absolutely, absolutely in fulfillment of everything you've empowered us to do. Help us to preach the gospel, sometimes with words and sometimes just how we live, without. But Lord, empower your church today to live a holy, righteous life. Our hope's in you that that means we should, purify, we should purify ourselves just as you are pure. And Lord, help us to toe the line until you say it's enough and you come back for us. Let us love with reckless abandon and preach the gospel with vigor and no cower and with grace and truth. Waiting for you, our blessed hope. We love you, Father. We pray this all in Jesus' holy name. And everyone said in one accord, amen.